it was zero in Anchorage, so it really isn't too bad in here by comparison. Just no matter how you look at it, you know. I came over yesterday afternoon, and it felt fairly comfortable in here, and uh, I didn't realize there was a thermometer on that clock, so I brought one over that's right new out of the store. Of course, it's probably Chinese Walmart. And I set it over here, and it said 76, and I checked just before services began, and it says 83. So, you know, you, you just don't understand. But I brought one out of the cellar when I saw this one looked like it wasn't working, and it said 64.8 yesterday afternoon, and this one said 62, I think. So I, I was right there saying, should I build a fire in the stove out there or not? Uh, and the weather forecast said it would be like it is today, or it would be like it was yesterday, which was in the 60s. Uh, but before I came over, I looked at the atomic clock, and outside uh, at our house it was 55. So it's probably between 60 and 65 in here. But it's hard to sleep when you're shivering. So, <clears throat> okay. Next week is December 1st. I'm trying to maintain summer and early fall as long as I can, but uh, we'll build a fire from now on through the rest of the winter. And then if it turns off 75 outside, they'll just turn the fans down over here. Somebody called me just before services and said, my thermometer shows it's cold outside. Uh, can you crank up the heat? Well, it takes hours to bring that there's over 400 gallons of water in that outside stove, and it takes hours to bring it up to uh, the warmth that would heat this building. So uh, we'll we'll start building it from now on, regardless of the weather, because this time of year it can get cold. And what they say on the uh, weather report isn't necessarily what happens either. So I apologize for that. I should have gone ahead and done it. But uh, well. Looks like it'll be okay, but I see most of you have jackets on. Anyway, let's talk about something besides the weather today. Um, Paul Muller, after he returned to South Africa following the feast, sent a packet over here, and he had inside it uh, some cards and letters, I guess, for a lot of you that he had spent some time with at the feast, before and after and at the feast. And uh, I put those in your boxes, but he also wrote a letter, There's a, and he put an inset in here. I don't know whether he included that in all of yours or not, did he? Something that says inset on it. He would have had to have written it out by hand 20 times, so apparently he didn't. Okay. I think his comments following the feast and going home back to South Africa could be of interest to us and might be a help and an inspiration at the same time. He wrote uh, Marla and I a personal letter here, and I'm going to break into the middle of it and, uh, and read a, a bit of it to you, as well as the inset that follows. But just picking up the thought, he says, Strange enough, my employer, which happens to be my brother-in-law, asked me when I, am, when I am moving to America, to which I responded that it would not be very difficult to do. That's his brother-in-law. <laughs> who talks to his wife. Make the connection there. She's always been against the church. And Paul's history, everyone over there basically uh, 
that came from the Boers. Hence, we get Boer goats, which they call Boers over here, but there should be Boer, really. Uh, belonged to the Dutch Reformed Church, and Paul had grown up in the Dutch Reformed. And shortly after marrying, he came across the truth and left the Dutch Reformed Church, which in a town of, oh, 1,500 to 2,000 whites maximum, uh, plus the black population, the Dutch Reform essentially being the white people, um, that went over like a lead cloud. And it certainly went over that way with his wife, and she's been antagonistic to the church essentially ever since. His sons <laughs> are not. They're friendly toward it, though not being involved. But with that background... He said, Say, uh, let's see, leaving my own family behind would be the most difficult part, but as for the rest, I wouldn't give it a second thought. I always like to think of myself as being above average concerning patriotism to my country and being true to what I have been taught uh, as of the history of my ancestors and to what they had to endure to accomplish that what I am able to enjoy today. This belief still held strong to a large extent after we lost all in this country after the ANC took over. I say to a large extent because having the knowledge I do have as a member of God's church, I know what was accomplished by them on a physical level was done in good faith and to the knowledge of God's word that they had. Taking this into consideration, I, however, never thought it possible that I could be shaken in this area of my life in such a short time, 14 or 16 days of the feast, from the time he left early we got back, and would be willing to move to another country if God would expect it of me. We surely are not citizens of this present world, and I pray that God would soon work things out for his children to be, to bring us together from the four corners of the earth to worship him in one accord. I pray for God's blessing on Anatoth and the big work of faith you are doing and leading there. So that's all of that, but I want to read this inset to you as well. <clears throat> it says, Home Again, remember the song, Hey, it is good to be back home again. That was John Denver. Family-wise, this is true, but being back in this, not even third world, as I come to see it now, society and understand that South Africa is the crown jewel of Africa. And he said after being here, he didn't even consider it a third world country, more like fourth world. Uh, society of incompetence is very frustrating. My visit to the States, firstly on a physical level, made me look at my own country with different eyes. Looking at and experiencing the orderly way of life in the States make this hypocritical undercover sham of democracy in South Africa, something almost unbearable. On the spiritual level, it is just as bad or even worse because people ask how the convention was and you cannot explain your feelings of excitement as to the new truths you have heard because they do not understand. So, being back in South Africa brought me back from the heights of the most special feast I ever had physically and spiritually, with a big bang to a rather low level, or brought me back with a big bang to a rather low level of frustration 
in a country that is rife with conflicts of hatred and mistrust. I do not want to sound negative or unthankful for what I have and can enjoy where I am, but being with God's people for 16 days makes it difficult to adapt to what you have formerly been used to. The flights back were okay. Only at Las Vegas, the security man took me aside and opened one of my hand luggage bags. My hair shampoo was confiscated, and the humorous part was that the rocks I collected and put in my socks and then in my shoes to save space seemed to be the reason for the investigation of my luggage. The guy said, are you a collector of rocks? He was quite amused, but fortunately didn't confiscate my rocks. He took them. These are rather special rocks. He has his pet rocks now, having been here around this area, and then maybe they are special rocks. As they were collected on my epic hike, the one he got lost on, you know. <clears throat> well, after that all went smoothly, after that all went smoothly, my cactus plant made it. He, he took a cactus back from here, and it is planted in my rockery, and I hope it will grow. My son, Johan, greeted me in Cape Town at the airport, and it was great to see him and tell about all my experiences. I also visited the Carboni family. They, in their turn, uh, contacted Aniki, who phoned me later, and what amazed me was that the only thing they had to tell Aniki is that I am still firmly under Daryl's influence. Okay. <laughs> I, I hope it's God's influence and God's word's influence, not mine. My son, oh, let's see. How sad, he says. I didn't even ask them if they were interested in the sermons. Well, not after that kind of reception. I asked Anaki if she would like a CD which Nelson made for her, and she sort of tongue in the cheek said she would listen to it. So I sent it to her. Unfortunately, our plans to meet on the road halfway to Victoria West didn't work out. It seems that their feast at Kleinman's was okay. They met with the CGG group one day for a meal. And uh, I had the films developed the day after I landed in Cape Town, and what pleasant memories it brought back to me. It was great to revisit all the places we've been, and I finally remember all the meals we had together and all the conversations and fellowship I could enjoy. My heart stayed behind with all of you brethren. So Paul's heart's here with us. Being back with my family is great, but being back in the community I live in is an anti-climax. You people at Anatot haven't got the faintest idea what privilege you have to live together in harmony as brethren, loving each other, speaking the same thing, and having the same goals in life. As I said before, here you fall back into frustration because of moping, complaining, gossip, mistrust, laziness on the job. Everyone is looking at each other, being scared they will have to do more than what is expected of them. Then if you turn on the radio or TV, it makes you sick. Strikes, shootings, stone throwing, filthy politics, robbery, and the list goes on. 
What totally amazed me came from a friend of ours. He is a longtime friend of my son's, but about eight years older. He belongs to one of the charismatic churches, but up to some point you can talk to him concerning religion. A very low point at some point. Something I cannot do with folks around here. After he has seen the photos and heard about my experiences, he said, Things do happen to people with a purpose sometimes not understood at the time. I wish I had the opportunity to meet with people of like mind in the surroundings that you have been able to. So even that guy appreciated what Paul had experienced. Then all over again, I just praise God for the wonderful opportunity he blessed me with to attend the feast with all of you brethren. A new year lies ahead, and it is my prayer that all of us may grow in the grace and knowledge of God and to be an example and a light to a dark and very confused world. May our Heavenly Father help us to do that, or to that end. I hope you will have a bearable winter. By the looks of it, we are going to have a very hot summer. We are hit by swarms of locusts that are now a result of the good rain we had. Don't know what it will be like when they will start flying. I found this very encouraging and, in a sense, inspiring to, to hear his words coming back to us and how much he really appreciated all of you and what you did for him and the experiences and meals and everything he had with everyone. And perhaps it gives us some perspective in what we do have that we might begin to take for granted when someone comes from nearly halfway around the world and appreciates what he sees here and misses it so desperately when he goes back to his life, his world, as it now exists. Well, some of you are anxious to get back to Ezekiel and have expressed that. Uh, I really appreciated the sermons that Gordon gave while I was down with flu-like symptoms. And then last week, it seemed to me timely to speak about Thanksgiving that was coming up and some of the things in the history of it. And you may not think that ties in at all, but I think before we get through today, you'll see there was kind of an inset, may not be included in uh, the series on Ezekiel, but I think that it introduced some things that are a tie-in to what we will see today. <laughs> it's been, what, four or five weeks now since I gave that first uh, sermon on Ezekiel 1 through 3, so I'll do a little brief review here. Uh, to, to catch us up to speed and remind us where we were so that uh, today's will fit it better. But as we learned, Ezekiel means one strengthened of God or the strength of God. So Ezekiel was in a very difficult situation, and God provided him a very difficult job to do from an emotional, uh, mental standpoint. It was going to be very, very difficult to accomplish what God told him. He would not be well received, and he would need the strength of God to do what he was given to do. Now remember that this came to pass, the beginning of the message to Ezekiel in the 30th year, the fourth month. And 
as a review, uh, we saw that that 30th year apparently had to do with the 30th year of the 50-year Jubilee cycle. Uh, and as we got into Ezekiel 3, where it talks about eating the roll that would be given to him, it would be sweet in his mouth and make his belly bitter. Uh, the only tie-in to that is in Revelation 10, where he will therefore shortly give John a roll to eat, which will be sweet in his mouth and bitter in his belly. And it goes from there in the context of chapter 10, right on into chapter 11, without actually a thought break, into uh, end-time events having to do with the two witnesses, the building of the latter temple, and so on. So, the time element of Ezekiel and the message of Ezekiel ties in directly with the message of the two witnesses at the end. Now, if we can establish the Jubilees as ending, or the Jubilee year to be, the next one to be 2027, which we had a sermon on before the feast, uh, that would then make this, 2006, the 29th year. Next year would be the 30th year. So, it may be that we're intersecting a timeline here. And I would think that if this is this coming year, the 30th year in the Jubilee cycle, ending at 2027 with the 50th year, that perhaps the work of the witnesses and their being revealed to the church should happen within the next, as I said that in that sermon, 12 to 24 months. Uh, if this analysis be correct and this timeline then can fit in with the end-time prophecies as we understand them. Notice the context. Ezekiel begins with God becoming intimately involved and having a very powerful vision to Ezekiel about what would be. And it is a description in chapter 1 of a portable throne, verse 26, of Christ, as is indicated in the last part of verse 28. Tie that together with Zechariah 2, where Christ says he will rise and go to work. Uh, about the time that the church needs to be gathered, put together as a latter temple, Christ is going to arise and get to work because people are messing with the apple of his eye, which is the inside church, which will be built. So those faithful Christians at the end are the reason Christ gets up and prepares himself to go to work. He's been sitting back. Now, he and the Father certainly have been guiding and leading and putting the basis of men over the nations, as Daniel 4 says. But at the same time, they have been in a sense, in the posture of sitting back or turning their face away from the church. And that will change. They will turn their face back to the church, and those who would hurt the apple of his eye, and any who would bring anything against God's church, Isaiah 54, uh, it won't happen. So he is going to begin at some point to directly protect, guide, and lead his church in a way that will be obvious. Not just something we pray and we get a little uh, help or a little answer to our prayers here and there, but it's something that is undeniable. 
And that is the way he came to Ezekiel. In other words, he got up from his throne, got in his portable throne, that is transported by angels, and came down in vision to Ezekiel. Now, he's going to be coming probably in a very powerful fashion to the church as well. And it might be that this timeline laid out in Ezekiel is very, very important to the end time. We'll see in a little bit that this has to be end time, partially because it talks about the captivity of Israel, and it talks about the captivity of Judah. Well, at the time that Ezekiel was written, Israel had already left the Middle East and gone to, uh, basically off into Europe. And the Jews had been, had gone into captivity, and Ezekiel was among those captives at the river Kibar. Now, since that time, Israel has never, as a whole, gone into captivity, historically. Nor has Judah. They've always been around, through Europe, and later on into America, Canada, South Africa, Australia, and other places that Israel migrated. So, at the time Ezekiel wrote this, all the captivities that would have occurred to Israel, except the end-time captivity, had already occurred. So, he has to be talking about something in the future. As we stand here today, it is still in the future. Not something that has occurred in the past. So, the whole book of Ezekiel is directed to the end time, both the physical Israel and, more importantly to us in a sense, the spiritual Israel, the church. Chapter 2, then, it says that he is sending them to a rebellious people that are impudent, stiff-hearted, full of spiritual pride, self-righteousness. That sounds like any in a Laodicean attitude at the end, who have their own way of looking at things and feel that they are okay. Now, most of the church, you know, buys that idea. Most of those who are still part of the church of God believe that the church is proud and self-righteous and leaning to its own understanding and feels that it is spiritually okay. Most of the church feels that way, except for themselves. See? They think that 95% of the church is laid a sin. It's just them that aren't. So when I say he's writing to a rebellious nation and people, most of the church will agree with me about most of the church in that statement. It's just that they are the exception. And I say to you that we ourselves are impudent and stiff-hearted. And we are self-righteous. And sometimes we lean to our own understanding and will make doctrine based on two or three or four scriptures rather than all the scriptures that have to do with a certain subject. We do that because that's what we want. So, he said to Ezekiel, you're going to be among briars and thorns or rebels and scorpions. But he said, I'm going to open your mouth and talk to a rebellious house. A rebellious house can be spiritual Israel, and it can be physical Israel. So he told him to eat that roll, 
He would not be sent to people of a strange speech or hard language except for some. And most of the church is in North America and speaks English. And most of physical Israel speaks English. Uh, if you look at America, Canada, South Africa, and Australia, some nations in Western Europe have their own languages, French, uh, Dutch, and so on. But most Europeans, most Israelite Europeans, no matter what tribe they're of, also speak English. Most Europeans speak two to four languages, whereas Americans can barely speak one. But he says Israel won't hearken. And we know at the end time, the church, spiritual Israel, will not hearken. Ninety percent will go into the tribulation. Only a ten percent remnant will even hear the two witnesses when they're on the scene. And certainly, physical Israel will not hear and will ignore. And 90%, as we will see shortly, will die. So, Ezekiel is written for right now. He told him to rise and go to the plain toward the end of chapter 3. And then he said, you're going to be shut in your house and you won't be able to speak for a while. And he, God would make his tongue cleave to the roof of his mouth and be as dumb and not be a reprover for they are a rebellious house. He said, if they won't listen, I'll just shut your tongue off and you can't speak for a while. That's the way it would be. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, verse 21, Thus says the eternal God, He that hears, let him hear. And he that forbears, let him forbear, for they are a rebellious house. And we left off there, and I want to pick it up now in chapter 4. You also, son of man, take you a tile and lay it before you, a clay tablet, in other words, that he could write upon or, or inscribe in. Portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. So he's going to draw a picture of Jerusalem. He goes on to explain this. <clears throat> lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast them out against it. Set the camp also against it, and set battering or budding rams against it round about, like a city in those days that had a wall around it. And if you wanted to take that city, you threw stones at the walls, you put battering rams there to beat down the doors or the walls, you threw ladders up it to climb over the wall to take the city, you cut off food and water from entering the city if you possibly could to starve the inhabitants thereof into subjection. And he was to portray this about the city of Jerusalem and all Israel, as we'll see in a moment, as well as Judah. Verse 3, Moreover, take to you an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between you and the city. And set your face against it, and it shall be besieged, and you shall lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie you also upon your left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it, according to the number of the days that you shall lie upon. It you uh, shall lie upon it, you shall bear their iniquity. So, we're going to see here, 390 days he was to lay on his side, and this would picture the iniquity of Israel, 
let's understand what it's talking about. It's the iniquity of Israel, and he was to lay siege against Israel. Now, what happens when you lay siege against the city? Normally, in time, it falls, and you captivate it. For I have laid upon you the years of their iniquity. Three hundred and ninety days, so shall you bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Now, what does all this mean? He tells him, then, when you've accomplished them, lie again on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. Forty days. I appointed you each day for a year. So, 390 days for Israel and their iniquity and sin. Forty days for Judah and its sin. And that each of those days was then to depict a year. Add them together and you have a total of 430 years. 430 days equals 430 years. thought about this one over a period of time. I've come back to it time and again over the years and wondered... What is it talking about? And I don't think ever really came up with a satisfactory answer, although I think this morning uh, it began to come clear. Now, you hear me say that fairly often, don't you? This came clear this morning. I said it in terms of Ezekiel 1 when I gave that first sermon. I thought about it, and all of a sudden it began to come together that Sabbath morning. But God seemed to open it up to understanding about how the 30th year and the 20 remaining to Jubilee fits uh, and so on with the end time and the work that has to be yet done by the church and the two witnesses. That all came in to be sort of another piece of the puzzle that fit suddenly. And I had toyed with chapter 4 off and on over the last several weeks. I go back to it scratch my head and say, how does this 390 and 430 fit together with what's going on today? Because clearly it is an end-time prophecy, and the commentaries don't give an adequate answer to that. But it struck me this morning, and I think it's a lesson for us that may be very important in days to come, weeks, months, years to come. And that is, The Christ meant exactly what he said when he said in the prayer, the example prayer for us, give us this day our daily bread. Until it is time to actually speak something, it seems, in many cases, God does not open the understanding until it's time to say it. It's not like something opens up and is given a year or two or three ahead of time, and you just sort of sit on it and say it at that time. When this information about the minor prophets and Zion and all of this began to be revealed back in 1996, I began to preach it immediately after it was opened. And as things have opened up more and more over these last 11 years nearly, they have been preached when we began to understand them, be it Passover, be it Jubilee, be it this, be it that. Uh, when the understanding has come, it has been time to say it. And God does not seem 
to give it until it is time. So maybe I've been in bed with the flu <laughs> for a purpose. It wasn't time. And uh, that other opened up on that first sermon, and this did this morning. But I think I can speak somewhat more intelligently now than I could have a week or two or three ago about Ezekiel 4. Now, if you do go to the commentaries, and I did from the standpoint of history, uh, basically what they do is they look and say, well, the only other 430 years that are mentioned in the Bible are Galatians 3.17 and Exodus 12.40 and 41, which mention 430 years of the sojourn in Egypt. And they say that that captivity in Egypt is what this is talking about. And they say the 40 years of wandering in the desert may be of the 40 years of the Jews. However, all Israel was there, not just the Jews. I read one paper. I'm not sure that the paper was from someone in the Church of God. They talk of the church, and I'm not, I, I don't know the origin of the paper. I, I, I got it somewhere, and it was in a pile that I had. And I came across it. And it gives another possible application, and that is that right after Solomon's reign, Israel rejected one king. And you know that Israel and Judah split at that time, and Jeroboam and Rehoboam took over. Now, under God's rule, normally speaking, what he wishes is that we have one king. Him. And when he gave Israel a king, it was a king over Israel and Judah, and they should have remained together, but they split. And this paper says that from the time of that split, 390 years later is when Israel went into captivity. Then it fast forwards to the time of Christ and to 30 AD, which is when he probably gave that Sermon on the Mount, and when he predicted that the temple would uh, be destroyed, remember in Matthew 24, 1, this temple will be destroyed. And it is said that that occurred on Adeb 14, 30 A.D., and that the temple then was destroyed, that temple, physical temple that he was speaking of, that he meant something more than that, was destroyed exactly 40 years later on Adeb 14, 70 A.D., when the church fled to Pella. Well, that may be a secondary application to it, but it still doesn't bring us to the end time. And Ezekiel certainly is an end time prophecy, because it begins with Christ intervening there in the 30th year, and it ends with the heavenly temple being built in Ezekiel 40 through 48. So, clearly, it is about the end time and leads into the beginning of the millennium. That is inescapable. All right, then, how does it fit together? I've looked at dates over several years and gone back to Jamestown in 1607 and, uh, and Plymouth in 1620 and so on and so forth, and it almost lines up, but it's about 10 years off of what it appears we might be looking at. 
So this morning I got on Wikipedia and looked a little bit again about the colonization of the Americas. Now, the Spanish began to colonize over here much, much earlier than North America, or uh, basically the U.S. and Canada was. Columbus came over in 1492, and the Spanish came back to conquer and to settle uh, as early as 1497. But that was basically in Mexico and in South America. And that was Gentiles coming over and dealing with Gentiles. But what about Israel per se? Uh, the Vikings, as we know, I think, pretty well from history, came over here as well many times through the 13s, 12s, uh, 11s uh, A.D. and established colonies and their remains of those colonies along the East Coast to this day. But they did not survive. They died out or went back or whatever might have happened to them, got massacred, Various things happened, and they never stuck and made it work. Now, let's look at the beginning of what did stick and see how it fits in. St. John's, Newfoundland was established as a colony in 1583. Now, we as Americans tend to look everything at everything through American eyes and what happened on the shores of what is today the United States. But let's not leave Canada out of the equation because we are part of Canada. Canada is our brother. Now, if you add 1583 or take 18 or 1583 when St. John's Newfoundland was established, add 430 years to that, we have Israelites starting out in this land in a colony that survived, and 1583 and 430 brings you to 2013. That's only about six years from now. Now, we're getting pretty close to the ballpark here if we're not in the ballpark, aren't we? Uh, let's pick a few dates and look at them a little bit. Uh, in 1587, there was a colony established at Roanoke. We have a Roanoke, Virginia today. Uh, add 430 to that, and you come up with 2017. Uh, 1606, there was a Virginian colony chartered. 430 to that brings you to 2036. Jamestown in 1607, 430 to that brings you to 2037. And 1620 takes you to 2050 when uh, Plymouth was established, which we talked about last week in connection with Thanksgiving. So those would put it beyond 2027, which appears to be the outside limit that Christ could return, based on the things that we saw in that one, one sermon. Uh, but if you go to Newfoundland, 2013 isn't that far off. And that's when Israel started colonizing that area which became Israel here, not Mexico or not South America, but the Israel we know today. Canada and the U.S. are mostly Ephraim and Manasseh, but there's an amalgamation of other tribes of Israel that came here as well. So we're mostly Israel, and the Judah part fits as well because there are far more Jews 
in America today than there are Jews in Israel, and more than there are in Europe too, as I understand. You add all the Jews up that are New York, Miami, and Los Angeles, and them scattered all across the country, and there are more of them here. How many are true Jews and how many are Edomites, I do not know. So, we're in the ballpark. Now, maybe God, I don't know what time he starts counting it, but it may very well be that he has obscured it to some degree because then we might know more exactly how the end-time prophecies fit in terms of timing. Now, let's understand what happened. When those people came to Newfoundland, when they came to Jamestown, when they came to Plymouth, they were an amalgamation of peoples coming from Egypt to, uh, from Egypt, well, yeah, really, from England uh, to escape King George and to live in freedom, especially religious freedom. They couldn't have it in England. So they came here for that. Now, among those people, you had a mixture of Protestants. You had a mixture of Sabbath keepers, people who were against Christmas, people who, some of them even wanted to keep the feasts of God. Some of those were established in Rhode Island and in some of the other colonies. Now, I submit to you that approximately 430 years ago, those people came to these shores as a result of God's promise to Abraham that he would give Israel the fattest areas. And among those peoples who came, some were apparently true believers in the true God. But over a very short period of time, they were shouted down. And the Protestant culture survived. Among them were Masons. Among them were people in secret societies. And those people also prevailed. George Washington was a Mason. There are pictures of him in his Mason's apron. Washington, D.C. is laid out in Masonic fashion. So, what I'm saying is, we had a chance when we first settled here because there were true believers there. We had a chance to build a godly society on these shores. Excuse me. But those people were shouted down. They did not prevail. So we had a Protestant, satanic culture that did prevail. Sunday keepers, they went back to, to Christmas. Christmas was outlawed, actually, in some of the colonies, colonies in early days, and later on took hold. In other words, God's people failed to establish a godly society here. Now, if you go back to the story of Israel going into Egypt, and I want to do that because I think it adds some information here that makes this all fit together pretty well. I want first to go back to Galatians 3 because he's referring here to the covenant made with Abraham. 
Galatians 3, verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So, he told Abraham that through him would come a seed which would be maintained right down to Christ. You can read the genealogy in Matthew, and that was done. And Paul is referring to that here. And this I say, verse 17, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Now, there is someone who has taken this and said that the time of the Abrahamic covenant was the beginning of the 430 years and used it somehow to try to prove the Passover should, or that the first day of unleavened bread should be on the 15th, uh, not the 14th as we now understand it. But it is very clear, as we will see in a moment, that from the time they went into Egypt and left there, on the self-same day, Exodus 12, 40 and 41, and I'll go there in a moment, they were in Egypt 430 years. But it was a long time from the time God made promise to Abraham until they actually went to Egypt, and that was not included in the count. From the time Abraham was given promise, Isaac was born, Isaac grew up, Isaac had children, Jacob, Jacob had children, among whom was Joseph, who went into Egypt, and Jacob later followed. So you have several generations there, four of them in fact, before the fourth count of 430 actually begins. So it has no relationship to the promise to Abraham in terms of timing. The law was given right after the 400 years ended in Sinai, remember? Uh, Pentecost. But it didn't annul or make the promise of no effect in the verse 17. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And that law, the law of Moses, was added because of transgression. I just read through Acts the other day, and it's amazing how many times it refers in there to Moses' law not being that which we go by. Now, I, I didn't write all those down, and I don't have time to go there today, but it just sort of struck me as I read through Acts that there was a change for Moses. And Paul explains that about circumcision and so, so on there in uh, Galatians as well. Now, let's go back and read that in Exodus 12, because I want to cover all the places that 430 years is mentioned, and then we'll see what bearing it might have today. Exodus 12, and here we want verse 40 and 41. This, of course, is the chapter about the Exodus from Egypt. Verse 40, Now the sojourning of the children of Israel who dwelt in Egypt, was 430 years. And it came to pass, at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day it came to pass, that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Now, this was 
in a chapter that is talking about the 14th. And that is when they were freed to leave Egypt. So it said it was exactly to the day, 430 years from the time they went into Egypt. Now, Abraham did not go there. He was dead. Joseph did, four generations later. But they were actually in Egypt exactly 430 years. Now, I want to go back with that background to Genesis 15. And let's see what he said to Abraham, because this is important in terms of what has transpired historically as we sit here today. Now, it says in verse 6 of chapter 15, well, a vision came to Abraham where he said, don't fear, beginning of chapter 15, and he said, Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abraham, Abraham said in verse 2, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And uh, Abraham said, Behold, to me you have given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is my heir, speaking of Ishmael. And behold, the word of the Eternal came to him, saying, This shall not be your heir. But he that shall come forth out of your own bowels shall be your heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, if you be able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your seed be. And he believed in the eternal, and he counted it to him for righteousness. God counted his believing as righteousness. And he said, It's not going to be Ishmael. It's going to be to one born of you henceforth. And he believed it. So he made a covenant here. Let's go down to verse 13. And he said to Abram, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. Well now, how do you coordinate four hundred years and four hundred thirty years? Exodus 12 tells us that they actually sojourned in Egypt exactly to the day, 430 years. So where do we get 400 years? 400 years could be a ballpark figure or an estimate, let's say. But God doesn't generally do things that way. Perhaps... From the day they entered, they were there exactly 430 years, as Exodus says. But they may have been there 30 years before they began to be reckoned as servants and slaves. So they were afflicted 400 years. They were there 430, but the affliction only lasted four years. I mean, 400 years. To me, that makes sense because they were not made slaves immediately upon their arrival, because Joseph was in charge, and he took very good care of them, established them in the land of Goshen, which was a fine area, and it was only after that, and we have no record, when they actually began to become slaves in the land of Ham. So they were afflicted there 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, speaking of Egypt. And afterward they shall come out with great substance. There you go to Exodus 12 and see how they spoil the Egyptians 
and came out with gold and silver and jewels and animals and so on. But in the fourth generation, they shall come here again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And it says in verse 18, In the same day the Eternal made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your seed have I given this land from Egypt to Euphrates, and so on. Then in chapter 16, you have the story of Sarah, or Sarai and Abram at the time, but later Abraham and Sarah, who conceived and had Isaac ultimately. Verse 21, My covenant will I establish with Isaac what Sarah shall bear to you at this set time in the next year. Now, that covenant was not going to be with Ishmael. It was going to be with Isaac. That is important for us to understand now. And this covenant was by circumcision, and Abraham was 90 years, 99 years old, verse 24, when he was circumcised, ouch. And Ishmael was 13 when he was circumcised. Now, the line of Israel was to come through Ishmael. Now, where did I... Where did I want to go here? Genesis. Oh, okay. In the beginning of chapter 17 is when this covenant that was mentioned in chapter 15 uh, is brought up again and confirmed. Chapter 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the eternal appeared to Abram. I skipped ahead and I should have started here. He said to him, I am the Almighty God. Walk before me and be perfect or mature. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face. God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be a father of many nations. Neither shall your name any more be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for a father of many nations have I made you. It hadn't happened yet, but God speaks of those things which are not as if they already were. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come out of you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your seed after you and their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your seed after you. Uh, I'll give you all the land of Canaan for a everlasting position, or possession, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, verse 9, You shall keep my covenant, therefore, you and your seed after you and their generations. And then he explains his covenant. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every man child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin. It shall be a token of the covenant between me and you. It's a symbol of that covenant. He that is eight days old shall be circumcised among you, every man child in your generations. He that is born in the house or bought with money of any stranger which is not of your seed. And he goes on to explain more about that. Then in verse 21, I will establish the covenant with Isaac. Now, how did it go? You have Abraham who was promised that it would not go through Ishmael. Ishmael became what? Twelve nations. Ishmael was described as a wild ass of a man. And those who came from Ishmael through Abraham and Hagar became basically the Arabic nations of today. Look at the nations of Islam or the Muslims today. Not all of them are Arabic, 
Not all of them through Ishmael, but a great percentage of them are. And tell me if that is not a wild ass of a people. <laughs> Certainly is. God's projections come true. And now, it would go through Isaac. Who was born to Isaac? Jacob. Now, through Jacob's twelve sons then, you have Israel divided into different tribes, of which they all were together, and then later on split, and now they're scattered in various parts of the world, and their names follow them, Abramson, Isaacson, Joseph, and so on. Zing Mao is not Israelite, but we are. The names that follow all the way through will not go back through the U.S. and British Commonwealth and prophecy and reprove all that. But the nations of Israel today are basically what you would term wasps, I suppose, uh, in today's society, white American, Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, even though they're scattered around the world in different nations. That came through Jacob's sons. Now, We know, and have tried to identify, and I think probably have in most cases, where those are today in Western Europe, Australia, South Africa, uh, U.S., Canada, and so on. But I want to go to Genesis 49 for a moment, where he tells or gives a prophecy about each one of these. And, and these prophecies have been what we used as a guideline in where those peoples would be. Now, it's interesting when you get down to verse 22, where it talks about Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well. Now, of all these sons that are listed here, uh, Joseph is given by far the greatest prophecy of blessing and abundance. Now, Joseph split into Ephraim and Manasseh. His branches will run over the wall like a grapevine that just, you know, grows up the wall and over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him and shot at him and hated him. Look at the world picture today. Who is being shot at, at least verbally, and hated more than any other nation on earth? I would say by far and away... The United States is hated above any other nation. Is there a great hatred around the world for Japan? Is there a great hatred for Spain? Is there a great hatred for Peru? The world hates us with a passion. Now our half-brother Ishmael, the Arabic world's, really hate us. We are the great Satan to them. And in truth, they are not far off because of what we have become. Ezekiel 16 describes our people today as appearing to have Gentile father and mothers. I look at you and you don't look like Israelites to me. You look like Gentiles to me. 
You know, if the shoe fits, sometimes you simply have to wear it. So we've been grieved at. We've certainly been shot at verbally and hated. And very soon now, we will be shot at physically. So this prophecy is not quite fulfilled yet, but physically it will be soon. But his, abode, but his bow, verse 24, abode in strength. Our military is the only thing right now that is keeping us from being destroyed. Well, God perhaps holding it up, but from a physical standpoint, all these nations that hate us would overrun us today if it were not for our military. They hate us that badly. And the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. How did we win? Normandy, Dunkirk, only by the strength and power of God. Only by the weather changing, in some cases, were we able to survive those wars and win, if you can win a war, World War II. Only by the hand of God. So this has come true of our nation. We're made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Where did God build his church primarily? Right here in the United States. And the second, the nation with the second most was very easily Canada. So the U.S. and Canada is where the church were built. Part of Joseph. Even by the God of your father who shall help you. And by the Almighty, who shall bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, the blessings of your Father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him that was separate from his brethren. And Joseph was separated, sent to Egypt by his brothers. Now, in the end time, Joseph was separated from his brothers, wasn't he? Most of them have their roots in Western Europe. Some migrated to South Africa, some to Australia and various other places, New Zealand. But for the most part, they came to the United States and Canada and were separated from the other brothers. We have the Atlantic Ocean between us and our brothers in Western Europe. So, this country has been blessed above all. It has been protected by God as a result of what was proclaimed here as a prophecy in Genesis 49, and it has come true. It is about to end, however. And those blessings are being taken away as we sit here today, and will be taken completely away, and this nation go into captivity. It is very interesting to me to compare what he promised to Abraham and what was laid out for each of the tribes, we being part of Joseph, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now he said that the covenant would be a circumcision. That's how you'd know. Well, this nation, the English-speaking peoples, generally have followed the rite of circumcision right on through, and it's another proof of where Israel is. They don't do that in China or Russia or other places. 
perhaps they are beginning to in some places more, but that has been basically an Israelitish thing that has come through and has been done here for the most part. Now, this nation will go into captivity, and it's very clear from many scriptures that most of it will be killed. When they came out of Egypt, they lived, millions of them. Now, because they would not obey God, they died in the desert. We have a little different scenario here. We have Israel that is going to be basically decimated, only 10% remaining to live into the millennium. We also have spiritual Israel today, who is not circumcised physically. Paul made it very clear, and so did they in the conference in Acts, that physical circumcision is not necessary today. It is circumcision of the heart that is. Now, our physical nation has followed, essentially, the right of circumcision, but that is not going to save them, is it? Because Israel, physically circumcised, has gone a different direction, and God will destroy them. Now, the church, for the most part, was supposed to be circumcised of the heart. But most have followed the desires and directions of their own heart. And 90% of them are going to go into the tribulation because the circumcision of the heart is not complete. We have not completely surrendered to God, followed all of his words and his precepts, and that is what circumcision of the heart is all about, to live by every word of God. And the church has denied that. So most of it will go into the tribulation and die as well. And only a 10% remnant who will circumcise their hearts are going to survive and be in the kingdom of God in the first resurrection. Total of 144,000. That's all. And that's from the Old Testament until now. From Enoch until the end. It's a very rare opportunity we are given today, you and me. Will we be circumcised or will we not? Out of all that came here, nearly all went into Protestant, Satanic culture that has been almost 430 years ago. We had a chance to do it right. I would say, based on that 400 years mentioned there in Genesis 15, and the 400, you know, the 400 years of affliction, and the 400 years of total sojourn there, it may very well be that this coming destruction of this country will come exactly 430 years from the time colonists set foot on this land and had opportunity here. I don't think it took, probably, from the time it was colonized, more than 30 years before the Protestants had complete sway and this society was destined to go the way of the pagans and has ever since. We have been in the captivity of Egypt for nearly 430 years, nearly 400 years. 
Maybe the captivity didn't count from the time colonies were first established on this shore. But maybe within 30 years, like in Egypt, they had become servants to Satan's way, the Protestant way, the Church of England way, whatever way, other than God's way. I think the parallels are amazing. That we've existed roughly 400 and almost 430 years in this country, and it is a godless society, and we don't recognize the true God anymore, except for a very few individuals. By the time Israel had been in Egypt, Moses came to deliver them, they didn't know who the true God was. They even asked, what is his name? Who is this God? Is it Ra? You know, is it the crocodile god or the fly god? Which god is it? Had to be explained. It's the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember them? That's a long time ago. Maybe they still had some stories about Joseph and Isaac coming down into Egypt with the sons. I don't know. But they didn't even know which god you're talking about. And when we today speak of the true God of Israel, most Americans have no clue of whom you speak. The Jesus they worship is not the Son of God. It is a weak, petulant, disobedient, satanic counterfeit. And they don't know any difference. And you can't explain the difference to them. I think that is probably very important in terms of us understanding that a true name for the true Christ or Messiah is Emmanuel. Because the name, Jesus, has been so polluted and so abused and so mistranslated and so lost And the image they have of a Savior is so polluted and so abused and so lost that they have no clue who the true God is. And the name Jesus gives a false impression. So I believe God has shown us that we can use Emmanuel to separate from the counterfeit Jesus that is about to appear. That's how bad our society is. That's how far gone we are. We're just like those Israelites in Egypt. What God? Which God? They don't know. And you know what? They're going to worship the wrong God. They're going to worship the false Christ, false Messiah, a false Jesus. I will not be surprised if it comes down in this 400 to 430 year time frame that was laid out by Ezekiel, or God to Ezekiel, about now. About this time that we are now living in. And we're right near the end of it. I don't know that there is any way to nail down exactly, but then God may not want us to know exactly. And even if we can figure out that 2027 would be the Jubilee year, 2026 would be the 49th year, the year of release, 
and then the Jubilee and the Millennium would begin in 2027. I would say Christ could only come back as late as 2026, the year of release, because the Jubilee has to come after that. And it might be at the beginning of that year of release, because we might be released from our physical bodies and be given spiritual bodies at the beginning of the 49th year and go to the throne of God for a honeymoon of a year and come back at the beginning of the Jubilee, 2027, Passover time. But it will be cut short. How short? I do not know. But it says explicitly, if this time were not cut short, there would no flesh be saved alive. So whether that's by months or by years, I don't know. But we know that there has to be towns without walls built, and that those have to probably exist for some years, but there will be blessing, it will be as a garden of God, and there will be healings. So those of us who think, well, I couldn't live that long, maybe you can. Part of the Abrahamic covenant was an old man of 99 who couldn't, and his wife, who was way past and couldn't, having a son. So if you think you're too old and can't, maybe you have another think coming. Don't laugh. <laughs> sure, it gives us a chuckle, doesn't it? It gave Abraham and Isaac a chuckle, didn't it? Do we know the true God? Do we know which God is going to deliver us? I chuckled too. I was, I was being, I was making a joke. You laugh. But to them it seemed like a joke. And they laughed. But they also took it seriously. And we can laugh at us being, feeling young and having hinds feet, legs like a deer, and the deaf hearing, and the blind seeing, and all those things. It may seem far-fetched. But God said it. Do you believe it? And does how you live reflect that belief? Salvation is a gift that cannot be earned. And I have sinned and come short of the glory of God many times in my life, and therefore it is impossible for me to earn salvation. Because if my sins aren't forgiven, I'm going to die. So I cannot earn something that I have already destroyed. It has to be given as a gift to me and to you. But we were created unto good works. And our faith is shown by our works. Now, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah made the chuckle. But they went to bed and went to work. And they had a son. They believed. They who couldn't said, well, let's give it a shot. And it worked. Are we believers? Believing and acting on that belief for what 
God accounted to Abraham as righteousness. Simply believing God and doing what he says, living by it, what it all comes down to. Now, we are in a nation that came into a new land, a beautiful land, with many natural resources, a temperate climate, a nation that is blessed beyond any other nations on earth, the United States and Canada, in terms of natural resources and climates and breadbasket-type land where you can grow the grains that we grow. It is a land blessed with fresh water. It was blessed with all kinds of game. Most of its population of Gentiles was killed off by diseases brought from Europe, smallpox and so on, not by muskets, but by disease, and given to us. God drove most of them out. We didn't finish the job, but God did most of it for us. Every opportunity was given here. And those early settlers rejected it within a few years and went right back to the paganism that they had come out of. So we find ourselves now roughly, I'll say, 420 years later, 415, 423, whatever. Very close to 430 years later, about to be besieged and destroyed. I'm supposed to quit at two, aren't I? How do you get a quarter of three? Oh, it's only a quarter of two. I did. Oh, this is my watch I wear only to church. I never change the time. Scare me to death here. Okay, we still have a little time. Let's go then back to Ezekiel. This is where we started. But I wanted to lay some of this out in terms of end-time prophecy so that we can see that Ezekiel is talking about right now. That Israel was gone from the Middle East when Ezekiel gave this prophecy. Israel had departed long ago for Europe. The Jews had been taken captivity, as I said earlier, and were in captivity, and he among them. And this was laid out as something then for the future. But from that time forward, Israel and Judah never went into captivity again. They've been essentially free in Europe and later North America ever since. The Jews have been persecuted here and there, as it says they would be in Genesis 49, but they as a nation have not been in captivity since. So what he wrote here and what was revealed to him is still unfulfilled. But it will be, I believe, shortly. It has to be an end-time prophecy. Therefore, the 390 and the 40 combined to 430 has to fit just before the captivity occurs because it's the only captivity it can possibly be talking about, okay? There's been no other since Ezekiel wrote this. So if there's one coming up, it has to be talking about it. I think that should be clear. So he said to lay on his left side 
390 days each day for a year to bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. Israel in the New World has been in iniquity almost since its inception. Under the control of Protestants and Masonics and other secret societies, even as it is today. It has been under the control of those who say they are Jews who are not. The Rothschilds, the Red Badge of Edom, who claim to be Jews who are not, who led the central bankers of Europe, and the central bankers in the United States today are tied together with the central bankers of Europe. And guess what? The Edomites control the money today. Now, it was said of Esau. Esau was a brother of whom? Jacob. That he would overcome Jacob in the end. All the blessings have been given to Jacob because Esau gave up his birthright, sorely wanted it back, and realized he'd made a mistake, but he would not repent of his bitter, angry, resentful attitude. God can give it to whomsoever he chooses. And even though Rachel and Jacob lied and cheated Esau, he went along with it, and he's had an attitude ever since. So, when Isaac laid the blessings on Jacob, and then Esau came in, he says, Bless me too. There wasn't much to do. Wasn't much to give. But he said, you will dwell in the fat places, that is, Edom would be where the money was. And that Edom, or Esau, would overcome Jacob in the latter days, at the end. Our wealth today, of this nation and Western Europe, and ultimately of the world, is in the hands of Esau. They are in control of this country. They manipulate puppets like Bush and Cheney on a string and have for hundreds of years. We are not to despise Esau. We stole the birthright. He's our brother. But we also need to understand what is going on. And that they will destroy us in the end. They already control us financially. And they are setting us up for the coup d'etat to destroy us. And it isn't far off. And that's why he told Ezekiel, lay on your side 390 years for Israel and 40 years for, Ju for Judah. See, the 390 represents the other 11 tribes and the 40 represents basically one tribe. Well, Benjamin and, and Levi were with Judah, but it's a shorter period of time. It only represents a smaller amount of tribes. So the, the bulk of Israel is represented by the 390 and the tribe of Judah, which was separated from Israel by the 40. So he laid on his side and besieged it, and it was about iniquity. And America has been a land of iniquity in spite of everything God gave us. He promised it to Abraham, and it happened. And Joseph became a fruitful vow in the U.S. and Canada, and in England to some degree. It has happened. But we were ungodly. And it wasn't long until we went into iniquity, and God couldn't tell us from the Gentiles. 
And you look at us today and you can't tell us from the Gentiles. It's sad. Verse 7, speaking of the 40 years of Judah, Therefore you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, which represents in this case all the tribes, and your arms shall be uncovered and you shall prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon you and you shall not turn you from one side to another till you have ended the days of your siege. Now, the commentaries say that he probably got up at night and moved around and he was only laying down bound uh, during, let's say, business hours when people would come by to see him and see the symbol of what he was doing. Now, I don't know that that's the case. God said he put bands on him so he couldn't turn over. He may very well have laid on one side for 390 days and nights. That'd be tough. And you'd have to be tied down or you couldn't do it. You'd turn over in your sleep and so on. I don't know which way it was for sure. Verse 9, take you also to you wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and pitches and put them in one vessel and make you bread thereof according to the number of the days that you shall lie upon your side. 390 days shall you eat thereof. That seems to indicate to me that he's going to be tied down literally for 390 whole days. Because <coughs> if you can get up and move around, you can fetch food. If you're laying there, you just have to have it laying there and reach it. Now, this is a bad siege. Verse 10, your food, which you shall eat, shall be by weight, 20 shekels a day. I know you're going to be bored laying there, but you can't just eat everything you've got in the first 10 days. You've got to last the whole time. So only eat so much a day. <coughs> From time to time shall you eat it. You shall drink also water by measure. The sixth part of a hen, from time to time, shall you drink. He was being rationed because it pictures famine, as we'll see in a moment. Uh, and you shall eat it as barley cakes, and you shall bake it with dung that comes out of man in their sight. So he was also, not only was he to have a pile of food here, he was to go to the outhouse and gather up a huge pile of human dung because he had to cook his food each day. Now, this was bad, laying on your side and eating food. But I don't know how much crap, how much manure it would take. It's all the same. I don't know how much dung it would take to cook for 390 days. But it would take quite a bit of dung to cook grain to the point you could eat it. Build that kind of a fire. So he was laying there uncomfortable, bored, and in a smelly environment. I've never really thought of that before. But he had to pile it up just like he piled a food up. Oof. That's when he complained. Verse 13, the Lord said, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles where I will drive them. So the human dung was a defilement. It was unclean. Then said I, O Lord God, behold, my soul has not been polluted, for from my youth up, even till now, have I not eaten of that which dies of itself, or is torn in pieces, neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. 
Then he said to me, All right, wimp. I've given you cow's dung for man's dung, and you should prepare your bread with that. Man, what a relief. You only have to smell cow manure for 390 days. But that's a whole lot better than human manure, I'll guarantee you. Moreover, he said to me, son of man, now there's a lesson there, isn't there? Things are going to get tough. Really, really tough ahead. But sometimes, if you pray in a certain way, maybe God will give a little relief. There's a principle there. So let's not read past that. Moreover, he said to me, verse 16, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment that they may want bread and water and be astonished one with another and consume away for their iniquity. They're going to start dying because they won't have enough food and enough water. And I'm putting you on a diet, and you're supposed to lay there for 430 days. I don't know how much relief came in between. But 390, short break, 40 more on the other side, his right side. Finally got to turn over. Maybe it was no break at all. Maybe he laid there for 390 days on one side, turned over on his right side, and the 40 days began immediately. I don't know. It would have been tough. And all the while he's laying there, he has this tile in front of him with the city of Jerusalem on it, and he's picturing a siege, just like a child's game of Tonka toys or whatever. He, he set up the city, and then he had battering rams and ladders and so on there, so that when people came by and saw him laying there, they could understand that this was done because of 430 years of iniquity. And it's referring to right now. It's not their iniquity back then. Now, there was certainly a type, and he did preach to those Jews that were there. Not to Israel, they weren't around, but to those Jews. They wouldn't listen to him physically. But what he was portraying, I believe, was our nations of Canada and the United States today, the descendants of Joseph, who have been given the most of anyone on this earth. But almost immediately upon receiving that blessing and arriving on these shores, our ancestors departed completely from the Sabbath keepers and the true believers and with the Protestant way, and the Sabbath keepers almost died out. Only a few remained faithful, and even they began to depart and die spiritually. And it's only then, through Herbert Armstrong, that a revival came. And even that has gone, most of it, back into paganism and Laodiceanism, and only a very, very few faithful 10% remnant of those who are called will be chosen to build the latter temple. We have knowledge of that. Not only do we have knowledge of that, by having the knowledge, we have great responsibility in that.
what is up to us to understand what has happened to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now Joseph, of which we are, who have been unfaithful to the true God and don't even know who he is. And he is about to deliver those few faithful who will recognize the true God and who he is and what his words mean and believe it as Abraham did, that it may be accounted as righteousness. And they will be the ones who do the end-time work. God is about to take a hand in the affairs of men in a very direct way. And with power and with miracles and with some of the sights we saw in chapter 1 of Ezekiel. Mighty, powerful, spiritual manifestations are going to occur. And only a few will understand what they mean. Most will follow the way of the beast. They will not deter from the path they are on. Do we believe God? Abraham and Isaac were called upon to produce, or Abraham and Sarah were called upon to produce Isaac. A son through whom God could work. We are called upon to produce Christ in us. A son through whom he can work. How much do we look like Christ? In a world, in a nation, that God says looks like Hittites and Amorites or your parents, he's looking for some that look like true Israelites, circumcised of the heart, to whom he can give the fullness of eternal life the descendants of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and Emmanuel. It's up to us.